grab a seat, and you're welcome to grab your notes out of your handout, and you can see what the topic is today. I do want to welcome you, and I also want to take a moment and welcome the folks who are joining us online today. And I'm just thinking about our friends, the Carruthers and the Robertsons, our extended Overlake family down in California, even the, the military family that uh, uh, joins us in worship online from Korea every single week. And so we're just glad to, to have uh, that kind of a worldwide community uh, worshiping together. What I want to do this morning is what we've done every other morning as we've gone through this series called Loaded Questions. We begin by asking Jesus for his grace. And we're going to pray for it together right now and, and simply pray that as we talk about this issue, which I believe is the most loaded of loaded questions, uh, we want to pray for grace, check this out, for the person listening with the most at stake. We want to pray for grace for the one who's here fearfully hoping that I will steward hearts carefully as I dialogue about a topic that is of interest to me but of vast importance to them. I um, humbly ask that none of you would take my words out of context as well. This is one of those issues requiring sensitivity and care, and I would hate for you to only listen to part of this message without hearing all of it in light of God's grace informed by the truth of his word. So let's go ahead and pray together, and and, uh, if you would, just join me. Jesus, we do pray for your grace. We pray that you would give uh, us your grace, each individual uh, person right now gathered together. We pray for your grace over our lives, for our shortcomings, for where we have fallen, for where we struggle, for where we stumble. We pray for your grace. And we also pray for grace in this conversation, that we would be able to have the conversation in grace that even if there are places where we feel pressed, where we feel stretched, where we disagree, Lord, that there would even be grace over that area of the conversation. We simply ask Jesus that you would cover us with your grace, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, you see the title of today's message. It's this, Will There Be Any Gay People in Heaven? And it is always helpful to start with the end in mind and work your way backward. We call that, you know, kind of reverse designing, right? You, you, you just, you, you look with a view towards where it is that this whole thing is going, and then you sort of construct backward to where we are today, and, and, and it's helpful to reverse engineer the work sometimes. So the question, will there be gay people in heaven? The answer to that question is no, uh, no, there, there won't be any gay people in heaven. Uh, will there be straight people in heaven? Uh, the answer, no. Uh, no, there, there won't be any straight people in heaven either. Um, will there be sexual people in heaven at all? No. No, is that a bummer to hear? I think it is for some of you. No sex in heaven. You're like, Pastor, are you sure you're, sure you're not talking about hell? Uh, but you know, the scripture is actually quite clear. Jesus is really frank about this issue. He, he says this in Matthew twenty-two thirty: For when the dead rise... Uh, They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. I actually love Peterson's message paraphrase of this verse. He says, at the resurrection, we're beyond marriage. As with the angels, all our ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, I just want you to see this. The part of God's plan is to glorify, right? To, to, To perfect 
our hormones and our chemistry and our biology and our desires and our relationships. That's heaven. And I so long for heaven. I so long for that day that words fail me. I literally cannot wait. I confess to you that I've been praying that Jesus would come back this week before Sunday. Uh, uh, Even now, Lord. But I just so long to transcend this imperfect mind and this broken body. And, and we just confess. We started the conversation last week talking about sexuality. But, but it all starts in Genesis 3 through 6. In those three short chapters, we see in the first book of the Bible, sexual brokenness becoming so pervasive. And it has just, just infiltrated the entire existence of humanity in every culture. This sexual brokenness exists, so much so that upon hearing that there will be no sex in heaven, some of you begin to wonder if you still want to go there, right? And we just confess that, as if sexual practice is the most important thing in the universe, as if sexual behavior is the most fundamental part of your identity, as if sexual pleasure is the greatest pleasure the God of the universe offers, You see, um, for the child of God, for all children of God, the future looks like this, that we will be glorified and perfected. We will be resurrected and in the presence of Christ himself. And, and, And it's really hard for us to imagine how incredible it will be to be those beings radiating with the light of God's love in his presence. The Apostle Paul gives us some glimpse of what that looks like in Romans 8, 22. He says, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. You can underline that phrase. We too await with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Oh, think of it, friends. Glorified bodies. That means glorified desires, glorified appetites. The flesh that we struggle so much with our whole lives, resurrected in glory, swallowed up in the spirit of God. Now, why do we begin here? Well, if we're going to have a discussion about gayness and straightness and graceness, then we have to have the end in view. And that's the end, that we all, every single one of us, is going to lay our sexuality down. We're going to put it aside. Homosexual, heterosexual, gay, straight, we lay down all entitlement to sex. Paul says even his victories and his triumphs, he counts as rubbish next to the glory of knowing Jesus Christ. So friends, we cannot take our sexuality into heaven with us. That's why I can say, no, there there won't be gay people there or straight people either. There will be glorified children of God saved by trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ to cover all their sins, standing blameless and radiant in the majestic presence of God Almighty himself, the all-loving creator and redeemer and restorer of all things who has reconciled all things to himself through Jesus Christ. That is the end of the saga. That is the final chapter. And it has implications for us. Because what that means is that 
the wrestle most of us have with sexuality is a here and now battle. And so the first challenge for us is that we would battle honorably, that we would struggle with our sexuality honorably, and to understand that the battle is not against flesh and blood. We are not fighting against one another. We're not battling people. We're battling for them. We're battling for their hearts. We're battling for our heart. And we're to honor Jesus, and we're to honor one another by remembering that we're not fighting against people, not one another, but we're fighting for one another. And it's important because right away, in this issue, we realize that we might need to repent of some things, things that we've done, words that we've said, jokes that we've laughed at. We have all of us sinned with our words and our attitudes and our judgments, and I want you to know that there are ramifications for those things. Would you please watch this video? We're gathered here today in our pink shirts to bring awareness to the fight against breast cancer here in Fort Worth and across the globe. But tonight I ask my colleagues' indulgence in allowing me to use my announcement time to talk briefly about another issue that pulls at my heart. The parents of Asher Brown, who you can see above, uh, complained to school officials in the Cypress Fairbanks ISD outside of Houston that their son was being bullied and harassed in school. The bullies called him faggot and queer. They shoved him, they punched him, and in spite of his parents' calls to counselors and principals, the harassment, intimidation, and threats continued. For years, it continued. A couple of weeks ago, after being bullied at school, Asher went home, found his father's gun, and shot himself in the head. His father found Asher dead when he came home from work. Asher was 13 years old. I'd like for you to look at his face. Unlike Asher, Indiana teen Billy Lucas, who never came, uh, never self-identified as gay, but was perceived to be by bullies who harassed him daily at the Greenberg Community High School. Three weeks ago, he hung himself in his grandparents' barn. He was 15 years old. Minnesota 15-year-old Justin Auberg came out to friends at age 13, after which the harassment and bullying began. It grew as he moved from middle school to high school. When he found the harassment more than he could bear, he hung himself in his room and was found by his mother. Classmates started teasing and name-calling Seth Walsh in the fourth grade. It continued through his middle school years where other students told him the world didn't need another queer and that he should, quote, go hang himself. On September 18th, after being threatened by a group of older teens, he went home threw a noose around a tree branch, and he did just that. He hung himself in his backyard. His mother, his mother saw him, pulled him down. Seth survived on life support for nine days before dying a couple of weeks ago. He was 13 years old. Teen bullying and suicide has reached an epidemic in our country, especially among gay and lesbian youth, those perceived to be gay, or kids who are just different. In recent weeks, New Jersey teen Tyler uh, Clemente jumped off a bridge to his death after his roommate outed him on the internet. Rhode Island teen Raymond Chase hung himself in his dorm room. And we learned just yesterday of Oklahoma teen Zach Harrington, who killed himself after attending a city council meeting in Norman, Oklahoma, where speakers made disparaging anti-gay remarks. There is a conversation for the adults in this room 
and those watching to have. And we will have it, that this bullying and harassment in our schools must stop and that our schools must be a safe place to learn and to grow. It is never acceptable for us to be the cause of any child to feel unloved or worthless. And I'm committed to being a part of that conversation. You know, the scripture says this, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Now, I just want to say this real clearly. This is where the Lion of Judah starts to roar. This is where Jesus steps in front of the bullies who are standing there with stones in their hands, and Jesus says, now, oh, wait a minute. If you don't have sin, then you can cast the first stone. And that's exactly where the followers of Jesus need to be. It's not just our schools that need to be bully-free. It's our churches. So right off the bat, we confess we just confess. We've used hurtful language. We've told gay jokes. We've snickered at an effeminate man. We've giggled at a masculine woman. We've been small-minded. We've been hurtful with language. And in doing so, every single time, we have unintentionally been working for the enemy of God. Every time we've said words like fag or dyke or other derogatory terms used as bullets to wound people made in God's image, we are obeying Satan. And so we lay down our sin, we lay down our pride, we lay down our condemnation, we lay down our hatefulness. We simply must begin this conversation in humility and repentance. And as we begin this thing, I just want you to know it'll be broken up in a few different sections, but the first thing I want to do is I just want to give a word to my straight friends, okay? I, I, I just want to speak to those in the room, heterosexual, married or single, but friends, we just begin this conversation recognizing that so many of us, in fact, most of us are broken sexually in some way. And so we just recognize how desperately we are in need of the grace of Jesus. And the sins we've committed are these, and I'm gonna list some of them. It's certainly not an exhaustive list, but how about, you know, lust, uh, embracing and indulging mentalities of lust, any thought or behavior embrace that fans the flames of lust including but not limited to pornography, promiscuity, flirtations, adultery, being present with your spouse while being mentally with someone else, um, being physically present with your spouse while being bored, thinking of the laundry or the work project or anything else other than being fully engaged, setting up sex as an entitlement, which is actually a form of self-worship, setting up your spouse as an idol, which is a form of codependence, Setting up sex as a god, which is idolatry. Withholding sex from your spouse as a form of manipulation or control. I have single friends who so fixate completely on some sort of a future marriage that it has become an unrealistic fantasy. We've sinned in defining our worth by how much sexual prowess we have. Uh, some of you are here, you haven't committed any of these sins because you only sleep with your spouse, but it's your fourth spouse. And in God's timeless and spiritual view, serial monogamy is just another form of polygamy. Adultery isn't simply cheating on your current wife. It includes cheating on your future wife if you're not married yet, cheating on your formal wife, former wife. And of course, divorce is that thing that God hates. And so I say these things. They're all sins, right? And I don't list them to shame you or to wound you. I mention them simply to recognize that they are sins that virtually all of us who are straight and or married 
commit with more regularity than we ever dare admit. And Jesus knows this. He sees the depths of our hearts and he chooses to love us. He loves us knowing our sin and he doesn't wink at our sin, but he gently invites us to lay it down at the foot of the cross, that we would nail it to the cross. And I would say the church is here for you too. Hopefully you've heard that again and again and it's been communicated to you. You don't have to have it all together to come here, to be on the journey, to receive love and care and prayer and healing on the road that you're walking, the battle that you're facing. And I encourage you to reach out to Jesus and invite him into those places, into your sexuality and wherever you're guilty of sexual sin that you would confess it and lay it down. We need to invite Jesus to be the Lord of our sexuality. And the one sin that we simply must lay down is the sin of thinking that homosexuality is the big sin that God cares about most, somehow bigger than our sin. Our homophobia has not served the kingdom of Jesus at all. Our hypervigilance on this issue has led to all sorts of error and pain. It's like we found the one sin that we don't struggle with. The, the sin that's mentioned maybe four times in Scripture and we have ignored the thousands and thousands of times that our sin is mentioned in Scripture, and we have made that the issue, the one that the Lord really cares about. And I just want to say our hypocrisy is revealed in this moment. We repent of it, and we humbly ask for forgiveness and for the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts and our words and our conclusions about how we read the Scripture and how we proceed in this issue. Tony Campolo said once, you know, Jesus primarily does not call us to love the sinner and hate their sin. Jesus primarily calls us to love the sinner and hate your own sin. We don't like that. But that's where we're called to go. Billy Graham says this, it's God's job to judge, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, but it's my job to love. We need to go there. Okay, so straight friends, are we good? The, 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 the field at the foot of the cross is a level playing field. And for any of us to stand at all, we stand knee deep in grace. Okay, so that's my word to you. We get, we, we've got to lay some stuff down. Jesus loves you and I love you, but we're gonna begin the conversation by laying some stuff down. Now a word to my gay friends. I would say I love you and Jesus loves you without question. He does not love a gay man less than a straight man. Jesus does not love a lesbian less than a straight woman. He loves each and every one of us perfectly. And I would address a gay friend in exactly the same way that I would address a straight friend. I love you, God loves you, and the grace of Jesus covers all of our sin. So trust Jesus and walk with Jesus and invite Jesus to be the Lord of all areas of your life. Because it's true that the Lord of grace has love for you. His grace is sufficient for you and for all of you, for your selfishness and your rudeness, for comparison and judgment that you levied against others, for self-destructive thoughts you've had, for self-destructive behaviors you've embraced. There are millions of ways that every one of us needs God's grace. So I would encourage you to reach out to Jesus today. Find his love and his grace to cover your sin right now. And know this, you don't have to do anything to earn his love. His amazing, unconditional love is revealed on the cross of Calvary. Jesus settled the issue of his love 2,000 years ago, and it's the best news that there is. None of us deserve his love, but he pours out on us anyway. So you can trust in his love 
and you can invite him to be the Savior and Lord of your life today. I really do encourage each one of you to reach out to Jesus and invite him to be the Lord of your sexuality. Ultimately, this is something everyone needs to realize, everyone, that Jesus needs to be the Lord of our sexuality. And so we ask Jesus to join us right there, right in the seat of your desire. And I want to tell you that in this issue, our language has limited us. Because some of you have heard people say homosexuality is sin, as in the state of your being, and so you feel rejected, and therefore you've rejected Jesus. Listen carefully. Being a homosexual is not sin any more than being a heterosexual is somehow sanctified. We may not have chosen our desires, but we do choose our behaviors. And we can talk about behaviors, right? Our behaviors can be sinful, whether we're gay or straight. So some of the same rules apply to my gay friends. For example, lust is no good. If you dwell in lust and, and you continue to embrace it in your minds, if you, if you remain there, lust will eat you up. Porn is no good, right? Nourishing yourself on that is like dumping gasoline on the fire. Uh, Flirtations, promiscuity, these things are not healthy. They don't lead to wholeness. They aren't a part of living the holy life that God calls you to, that, that he invites you into. So start with the end in mind. Jesus invites us to embrace a character that we'll have in the next life in this life now. And so Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin. Oh, who is this? According to that list I just read, it's everybody, right? Those who indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols, commit adultery, are male prostitutes, practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, we cannot take those behaviors into the kingdom. Some of you, Paul says, were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, let me just say a word. At Overlake, we truly have an open-door policy. Our arms are open wide to embrace everybody. I, I want us to be the most accepting church ever. And you take a look at that list in Scripture, and you're like, look, um, does Overlake um, welcome, do, do, we, do we just accept and embrace those who are in sexual sin, worship idols, commit adultery, male prostitutes? Like, go through the list. Thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusive, cheap people. Like, do we have those people at Overlake? There are elders, right? Like, yeah. We've, yeah, we've got them, right? Some of you were once like that, but you were what? Cleansed. You see, I, I, I want you to understand that I can tell you stories of strippers and male prostitutes, male escorts, glamour models, finding Jesus at Overlake and inviting Christ to be the Lord of their lives. I am so humbled to know these brothers and sisters. And what they've done is they've given their lives to Jesus and it begins to mess up all sorts of things for them in a good way because they're gloriously slept, swept up in a love relationship with Jesus and they begin the adventure of walking with Jesus and it's rarely easy, but it's awesome. And what is central, what is most important is their relationship with Christ. And I do want you to understand that we live in a fallen world 
where the brokenness of our sexuality has created all sorts of confusing scenarios. But we keep our eyes on Jesus and we keep pointing people to Jesus. And when we do, we see all sorts of amazing things along the journey. I want to tell you a crazy story. I, don't, I think it was too crazy for 920, so we'll see how you guys handle it. It's a true story, and it's in Thailand where we work against trafficking. Overlake's taking it very serious to come against human trafficking. So we've got partners on the ground, and, and we work intensely. We're in Pattaya mostly, but in Bangkok as well. And, and there's a subgroup of folks in the sex industry that identifies ladyboys, it's called. And it's a group of very young boys. They're teen and preteen. So you've got 11 through 14 years old. And they are thin and shapely. They're effeminate. They survive by working in the prostitution. And I want to say that it's the lowest, most degraded rung on the ladder of the sex industry and the last stop before many of these ladyboys take their lives. So, of course, we seek to love them in the name of Jesus, and we seek to point them to the hope in Christ. And one of our elders was telling me, he, was, he was, has been there for year after year, and he was telling me that a couple of years ago, one of the lady boys had succeeded in completing a rudimentary sex change operation so that physically he was no longer a boy, he was a girl. I'll, I'll refer to this person as a she for the rest of the story. She did it in an attempt to alleviate her shame and her depression, but it didn't help. Sometime after the surgery, one of Overlake's partners met her and loved her like Jesus loves her, and he led her to trust Christ with her life. And so this new believer began to go hard after Jesus. She gave her whole life to the Lord. She embraced a lifestyle of purity and celibacy. And now a couple of years later, she leads a home group, and she evangelizes in the bars where the other lady boys are at work. Her testimony is this that she has never once felt at home in her own skin, in her own body. But now in Jesus, she's finally at home. And she's leading others to make Jesus the Lord of their lives and the Lord of their sexuality. Friends, this is why Paul says, look, the most important thing is calling on the name of Jesus, being cleansed by his spirit, trusting him for healing and for wholeness in your life. Everything else we're gonna leave behind sooner or later. Are you with me? That was a tough story, I know, right? Some of you are like, whoa, did we, did we raise money as a church to pay for another sex change operation? Like, like no, g- give the situation to Jesus and let her walk with Jesus, right? And that's what we all are called to do. And we're born into a fallen world and that fallenness makes for some dynamic roads of hardship and heartache. And I'll give you a real example. Uh, the term is intersexual. And that means that in some way, an infant is born into this fallen world with the genitalia of both male and female. How many, how many kids are we talking? How many, how many babies? Between 70 and 140 million. Uh, does God have a plan for them? Of course he does. Uh, will there be confusion and heartache over their sexual journey? Yeah. Will their confusion and heartache be gone when they're glorified in heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, pastor, what about a committed relationship then, monogamous between two consenting adults, i.e. a civil union or here in Washington, a marriage, a court marriage? And I know Christians and scholars, I know academics, true lovers of Jesus who fall on both sides of this debate. It is, as we've described, an open-handed discussion. 
And certainly there are many qualities that Jesus wants everyone to have an opportunity to build into their lives. For example, deep friendships, healthy community, support, care, laughter, kindness, a best friend to grow with, companionship when facing trials, self-sacrifice on behalf of someone else, etc. And so just to be clear, the issue that some Christians have against same-sex relationship is not an issue against any of those things. It's against the sexual expression in the relationship. And so on the one hand, I am for everyone. I, I appreciate living in a society where everyone has the same rights and is treated equally and has equal respect. And on the other hand, I also am committed to the scriptures. And because I believe that they're given to us by God to give us insight into the most abundant life of love that God has created for us. And so when Jesus defines marriage, he quotes the Old Testament, and he defines it as a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. So in the biblical definition of marriage, we're not free to redefine. The state can and does define its terms however it wants to, but followers of Jesus submit to his definitions. Now, having said that, Has God worked through people who have defined marriage differently than this throughout the centuries? And the answer is, of course, he has. We have in Scripture a picture of God's best, and then we have a picture of what happens when people can't or somehow don't live according to God's best, and then they operate in God's grace. I know a guy, for example, who had seven wives and ten prostitutes living at his house, all for the purpose of his sexual pleasure. And even with all these women at his beck and call, this guy ends up committing adultery, and then he kills the husband of the wife that he slept with so that he can make her his eighth wife. I don't know how you commit adultery when you've got 17 gals waiting for you. This guy had a nickname. Uh, Some of you know it. It's... Man after God's own heart, talking about David, King David, the writer of the Psalms, the ancestor of Jesus, a man who God had a special covenant with because David was so in love with God and offered him worship as the primary posture of his life. God thought so highly of King David that he named his own son a son of David. Now, Did David ever figure out sexuality and purity in this lifetime? I have no idea. You know, the scripture gives us evidence that even on his deathbed, in his old age, they put a beautiful young teenage girl into his bed with him for companionship and to keep him warm. Does that make anybody else laugh? I am so cold. Bring me a virgin. (laughs) Some of you are like, I got to try that. Don't. Uh not a good plan. So I I don't know if David ever figured this out in his lifetime, but has he figured it out now? Standing face to face with Christ in his glorified, resurrected state? Absolutely. I know a guy who lived single his whole life, but he wrestled so significantly with his flesh that he confessed that he did the sinful acts that he hates. He was so distraught that he cries out, what a miserable man am I? He called the struggle a thorn in his flesh, a tormentor of Satan. And yet he also ironically states, it would be better if you were single like me. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. He wrote three-fourths of the New Testament. 
Did he ever figure out relief and purity in this lifetime? Well, he did hear Jesus say, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's true for each and every one of us. But whether or not he figured it out in this lifetime, has he figured it out now in his glorified and resurrected state, standing face to face with Christ? Of course he has. All I'm saying is that we've elevated sex to be everything in our culture. It is an idol. It's a god. Single folks think of it as the pinnacle of existence. We are now at a place where we literally define ourselves first and foremost by the people that we'd like to have sex with. We want to be sexy and strong or nothing. We are so broken sexually. And yet God has abundant grace for each and every one of us. No matter which side of that fence, we find ourselves most at home. God has healing. God has love. God urges us to invite him to be the Lord of our life, even the Lord of our sexuality. So let me just say this clearly to all who are listening. What's more important than sex? Jesus is. Jesus. Whatever your road, however you define yourself in the privacy of your own mind, you are invited to give your life and your sexuality to Jesus to trust in him and to trust in his love, to trust in his grace, trust in his forgiveness. Invite him to be the Lord over all areas of your life, including your sexuality, and then walk with him as you pursue purity. Because I wanna be clear that not all our behavior is okay with God. Just because you have a desire does not mean that God wants you to embrace it. Nowhere in scripture are we told, since you desire it, it must be God's plan. Right? The words, if it feels good, do it, is not a mantra found in the scriptures. So let me say this clearly. Sexual sin of any kind is not God's plan for his people. And that means, I'm, if I'm speaking to my gay friends, that, that means to those who are same-sex attracted, the pathway towards abundance and wholeness is intimacy with Christ first, and then celibacy in your relationships And that's the way I understand the scriptures in both the Old and the New Testament. And I realize, friends, I realize this sounds like such a hard road. In fact, for some of you, it sounds like a prison sentence. And so so, I just want to say this. I believe it's for this reason that Jesus chose to live a celibate life. I believe it's for this reason that Jesus decided to walk the road that he chose to walk. Because Jesus lived a full and a rich and an abundant life as a celibate man. And he invites us to walk in the fullness and the richness and the abundance that he provides for us. Right? He was able to bring God's kingdom here and live in the future heaven now. And that's the life that he invites us to. And so I found this quote from Janelle Williams in her book, The End of Sexual Identity. And she says, Like other intentional countercultural practices, such as living simply, celibacy challenges cultural beliefs about personal worth, identity, success, and even health, and it can cause others in the church and society to reconsider their idolatry of romance and sex. It can also be a spiritual calling that chooses one good, the way of Jesus, over another good, genital sexual expression. But friends, the only way forward, I believe, is to reach out to Jesus, to invite his lordship over your sexuality and to walk with him in wholeness and holiness. And I believe the Lord himself will dwell within you 
and he will provide strength and power and clarity for your road. And, and spiritual friendships also are powerful tools for you. And so I just want you to understand we have to celebrate recovery and support groups. And I put a couple of resources at the bottom of your hard copy outline that if this is something that you would like encouragement on, that, that we do have some resources for you. And if you're here and you're gay, uh, same-sex attracted, and you're largely living in isolation, then I do want to mention that there's an online community called the GCN, the Gay Christian Network. And it's a community filled with people who love Jesus, most of whom are seeking purity as they follow Jesus, and who have simply identified their desires as gay or lesbian. It is millions strong. And the reason why I mention it here is simply for encouragement. You need to know you're not alone. You're not alone in this journey of inviting Jesus to be the Lord of your sexuality. You're you're not alone. And so I want to conclude our time together by giving you a word about heaven and hell. A word about heaven and hell. I'll begin with Paul's words in Romans 8.1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You place your trust in Christ. There's no condemnation for you. You don't need to live in fear. You placed your trust in Christ. You received his grace over your life. You have, it's a not guilty. It's a no condemnation life that you get to live. And I, there's a ton in scripture. In fact, last year I decided I was gonna read through the whole scripture again. I've done this several times, but I just thought, you know, I'll just spend a year. I'll read through the whole thing, you know, every verse in in the tome. And there is a ton in scripture about God destroying the wicked. I'm, I'm telling you a ton. The prophets are filled with these, the, these um, um, you know, the dictates of, of God destroying the wicked. But the Bible talks about an even greater trick than God destroying the wicked, and that's God destroying wickedness. This is when God decides that he's gonna purify me of all my sin and all my dross. This is when God makes the lion lie down with the lamb. And in Revelation 21 and 22, this is the picture that we see. There'll be no wicked things at all, that that the entire scenario of eternity will be completely purified, defined singularly by our identity as God's children, defined only by Jesus' amazing grace. And you think about that reality, and you know, you know, I'm not there yet, Pastor. I, I, I'm not there yet, Mike. I don't, I, I, you know, that's an ideal, but I'm not in the ideal. I'm in the real. And so I would tell you that the Bible has an interesting take on what happens for those who trust in Christ, but who have built parts of their lives on things other than him. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Okay, Paul's clearly writing to believers in Jesus. And he's saying, look, as a believer, you get a chance to build your life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. So this is true for me. On that day, when I stand before Christ, what's going to be revealed is all the stuff I built on that wasn't on Jesus. So it's all the, you know, it's all the areas of my life that, that existed outside of what his desire was for my life. So, for example, you know, Mike's insecurity and desire to, to be a really nice dresser. Some of you are looking at me, you go, there's no way that's your deal. Well, you know what, okay, I got it. Um, it, it just gets burned up. 
Uh, any part of my ministry that was built on wanting to make Mike look good rather than Jesus look good, that, that stuff's going to be burnt up. Uh, every single um, conclusion that I came to while reading the scripture that was more about Mike than it was about Christ, those conclusions, they're, they're burnt up, right? So it, it, it's, it's, it's revealed by fire. And anything that's not of Christ, built on the foundation of Christ, gets destroyed. Are we clear? That's what, that's, this is what's also called um, the, the judgment that believers face. This is believer's judgment. And then he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. So for all the good stuff about my life and ministry and my writings that was built on Christ, there's going to be a reward for all of us in that regard. But then he says, if anyone's work is burnt up, look at this, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So that that purification process, that refining process, it, it will be tough. It'll be invasive. It's in this moment that we'll lay down stuff like our sexuality. We'll just lay it down. We've built much of our life, much of our thought, much of our behavior on stuff that's not Christ, and that stuff's gonna be refined. We will survive, but as one coming through a fire. Okay? So that's the picture that Paul gives us. Right? So that's why we wanna be in Christ. We wanna invite him to be the Lord over every area of our life. So we're not building on places outside of his foundation. And then a, a, a few verses later, a couple chapters later, Paul says this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything, not mastered by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And look at this. God will destroy both one and the other. What's he talking about here? He's talking about our appetites. Our appetites, the, the way in which our flesh encourages us to pursue our appetites. What's he saying here? Look, they're both gonna be destroyed, food and the stomach. That's what glorification looks like. And then he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And check this. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So friends, it's not about our appetites. We're not to be mastered by anything, but rather we're to move toward what is helpful. And our bodies aren't made for sexual immorality. They're made for the Lord and the Lord for us. He's the one who raises us up, perfected, glorified, cleansed, redeemed, whole, and holy. Everything that's built that's not of Christ will be burned up and refined away. So, without doubt and without argument, no gay people in heaven and no straight people in heaven. There will be children of God in heaven, glorified, and all sexual confusion and brokenness healed and redeemed for all of eternity. So you're here today, you're listening online, whether you're gay or straight, we preach that the love of Jesus Christ covers all of our sin. We preach that trusting in him for the salvation of our souls is the way that we receive his grace. We receive his presence in our life and the power to live in this fallen world. We seek to model asking Jesus to be the Lord over every part of our lives, including our sexuality. And where we fall, we land in love and we get back up and we keep walking with him. And so right now, I would love to pray and just allow us to give ourselves once again to Jesus. And so if you would, please close your eyes and bow your heads. And there's one more question I believe that comes up. 
And again, this is, this is for the most vulnerable among us. And the question is, well, can I be in process? Is there safety to be on the journey here? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Today, I simply want to encourage you to place your trust in Jesus. We bring our lives and our brokenness and our sexuality to you right now, Jesus. We are so thankful that you're here. We're so thankful that your love for us extends throughout eternity. We confess that this world is fallen and that we in it have many areas of our life where we're broken and where we're hurting and where we're in need of your Holy Spirit to come and to do some intense healing deep within us, to do some restoration deep within our soul, deep within our desires, deep within us. And Jesus, what we do ask is that you would allow us to consecrate our lives and our bodies and our sexuality to you, that we would more and more have the mind of Christ as we walk with him in greater areas of intimacy and worship. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you never give up on us, but you always are there to pick us up and to walk in grace with us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen.